Hi, I'm Jeff Watts, and I wanted to welcome you to the Renaissance Podcast. We are so excited that you have chosen to listen and join with us as we strive to reach the heart of our city with the truth and love of Jesus. And we know that God is doing amazing things in our community, and I am blown away at how many people have told me that Renaissance has provided a place for them to rediscover Jesus. It's given them a caring church family to be a part of, and has helped to transform their lives. If you're one of the men and women who have been encouraged, helped, and strengthened because of what's happening here at Renaissance, then I'd like to ask you to become an investor in what God is doing in our city. And here's one way that you can do that. Go to rendicatororg backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them. Enjoy the podcast and thank you so much for being a part of this community. Right on. Hey. Merry Christmas to everyone. How are you? Good morning. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the leaders here. Um, funny thing about that video is like we totally tried to, to get Izzy really excited about this wonderful gift. So we push that Toys R Us app on the iPad in front of her, just trying to get her, her wedding, her, her appetite for a really awesome gift. And then we want to just disappoint her so much with that potato. But she's such a good kid. She enjoyed the potato. I, I swear this is true. Her mom and dad were here at the nine. They said she's still playing with that potato <laughs> at home. That's funny. So that was like a, a massive fail on our part, right? We really are hoping for disappointment and expectation to be this great, you know, segue into this week's message. Thank you for coming to week two of our three-week series, Christmas series, that we're calling Unwrapped. It's so great that you're here. And, and the idea of disappointment didn't work in the video, but I know that that maybe if we were to go back into the recesses of even our own memories, that we could probably point to a, a time on a Christmas not long ago, maybe when you were younger. For some of you, that's a while ago. Wink, wink. And anyways, but there, there's this moment when you received a gift from someone and you were a little disappointed. Uh, I grew up in the 70s when the Star Wars originally came out, not this other stuff that's happening now, which is good, but the original Star Wars, if you know what I'm talking about. And I was hugely into Legos. Anyone into Legos? Right? I love it. And there was this new Lego set coming out, the Star Wars something, and I made sure my parents knew all about it, and like I was convinced this is, I'm, I'm getting this for Christmas. Um, come to Christmas, grandma shows up with a gift. I open the gift in from grandma and it's like, it's like generic mega blocks. I don't even know what, I didn't know that was a thing. It's not even Legos. And it was like this guy named Jack Skywalker. I don't know who that is. Another generic Star Wars character. It was terrible. And the disappointment was palpable. And, and then we grow into adulthood and now we're watching the faces of other people, maybe even some of our own kids and grandkids. And now we see see this disappointment bubble up out of their face on Sunday mornings as well. We get to experience that. Now, here's what's really great about this. Um, I'm married into a family. Um, my wife has a couple um, brothers. Um, and so at Christmas time, we don't buy gifts for everyone. We do that really smart thing where we draw names so that you just have to buy one gift for, for the person that you draw. Otherwise, you would absolutely go broke. Does anybody have a family like this where you just draw a name for someone and you're like, okay. Well, in, in my wife's family, she's got this one brother. I won't mention who it is because I want the other brother to think it's him too. But, but this one brother, he's... He's phenomenal at buying gifts. Like, like secretly, when we draw names, I pray to the risen Savior Jesus <laughs> that he would get my name. Please, 
please, I don't want another candle. I don't want, right? I want something I really, really want. And, and this brother that she has, it's phenomenal. It's as if he's got this supernatural power to like look into my soul and know, and know what I desperately want. But you know what? He doesn't have a supernatural power. What he has is this uncanny ability to watch me. And he'll see me at the store or Lowe's or something, and he'll see me linger around a certain thing. Or when I bring up a certain topic, um, the pitch in my voice goes up. And he just has this uncanny ability to, to notice that. And then secondarily, he, he takes that and puts it into the, the sticky part of his brain and remembers it for everyone. And then when we draw names for Christmas, he doesn't have to go far to think about what they want. He already knows because he's been paying attention. And so last week, in our first week of this series, we talked about Jesus as a gift, that God the Father has pushed across the table, if you will, the greatest gift of all, Jesus, a Savior. And we talked about how to unwrap that gift means we need to look into the details of the Christmas story to fully understand it before we could accept and receive that gift. But this week, I want us to pay particular attention to this idea. If, if the gift exchange is a real thing, and we do it every Christmas, I give you, you give me, right? We exchange gifts. If God has pushed uh, into our side of the table, uh, Jesus, what are we then pushing back to his side of the table? What, what is the gift that we're giving back to God? You're giving something back to God, I would think, right? And, 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 and then most importantly, not only what is that thing, but this is key, is it what he wants? Are, are we giving him the things of our lives, the very thing that God desires of us, or are we giving him something else? Is he disappointed? Now, here's the great thing about God. He's not like you and I. He doesn't get disappointed in those things. What he does then do is to help us see the exact gift or the exact thing he would want uh, back from us and all of that. So, so today, with that in mind, I want to read Luke's Gospel, chapter 2 again. We're going to be on this lather, rinse, repeat this whole Christmas season. I think Luke's Gospel has the greatest telling of the birth of Jesus um, that is in the Bible. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 2. I'll read verses 1 through 6. If you don't have a Bible, it's all good. We'll put the words up on the screen, and you can follow along there. Starting in verse 1, and, and again, I like Luke's gospel specifically because he seems to give us so many details about this, uh, details that the other gospel writers don't give us. And so to me, that's important. That's where my brain sort of goes. So verse 1 says this. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all of the world or all of the Roman world then should be registered. A census is to take place. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So just to pause here, this is kind of a cool moment. So Luke is just giving us a little detail. Now, it means nothing to us. And to be very frank, I can barely say the name Quirinius. There's a great name for all the pregnant ladies in the house. I'm just saying Quirinius, right? right? No teacher will get that right on the test. So anyways, he, he, he's saying that this, this event took place at a particular moment in history. And if you don't believe me, here's some details about it. When that dude was governing and Syria, this thing happened. You can pay attention. If you don't believe me, you can ask around because they'll know all about it. So Caesar calls for a census. And when, when this happens, Joseph in verse 3, um, sorry, and all went down to be registered, each to his own town, verse 4. And Joseph went down from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, a portion of Israel, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem 
because he was of the house and the lineage of David. And he went there with Mary to be registered, who was his betrothed, who was also with child. Verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for Mary to give birth. So I just want to pray for us. Um, I have a particular detail, one specific thing that I want to sort of march around for a few minutes this morning. Um, I'm just going to ask God to help us see what I think Luke wants us to see. So would you bow your heads with me and let's pray together? Lord, we, we give ourselves over to you fully. We, we ask that you do open our eyes and our hearts to see and to receive uh, the truth about Jesus that you would have for us. That we've come here, we've parked the car, we've, we've battled the cold, and we're in here now. And I, just, I just ask, God, that you would help us to, to pay attention, that we would hear your voice. God, we, we come to you with a thankfulness. We thank you that you have given us Jesus, and we receive him from you. And, and we ask now that you would help us to look inside of our own hearts to see what is it that we're pushing back across the table to you, and what is it um, that you want from us? Because we... We wanted Jesus, and we need to give you back what you want. And so we thank you for that, and we thank you for our time together. God, we ask that you bless us and that you'd be with us in Jesus' name. So uh, one of the, the, the one point that I want to go around and around on is this particular thing that, that Luke mentions in verse 4. He says that Joseph goes down from Galilee from a little town called Nazareth, which is where he's living. I guess that's his main headquarters there with his family. But he has to travel down to a little city, a city of David, which is called Bethlehem. And he does so because he's of the lineage of David. He's in David's sort of family. Now, what's interesting about this is when I read this story and I see the word Bethlehem, I just start playing that little Christmas carol in my head. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Maybe some of you are doing it right now. You're welcome. So it's stuck in your head, right? Oh, little, right? And so, but I, I want you to know this. The Jewish people, right, who have an understanding of what Bethlehem means would already hearken back to um, the idea that, that Bethlehem is an ancient city that it has lots of history all up in the Old Testament. You can learn a lot about it. Some of you will know the story of Ruth and Boaz and others from the Old Testament. All of that takes place in this city called Bethlehem. But to you and me, Bethlehem means nothing to us. And so Luke, because he's writing to non-Jewish people, he's writing to Gentiles like us, he adds these specific details. He said, this town Bethlehem is also called what? A city of David. And he goes there because he's of the lineage of David. Now, the question that we might ask is, David who? Why is this important to us? And I think it's hugely important for us to understand. David is one of the greatest characters in the Old Testament. One of the most famous uh, characters in the Old Testament. A lot of things have happened to David, and, and you don't have to have any church background, any theological understanding, and many of you in this room already know some of the great escapades of David's life. Many of you have heard the story of David and Goliath. Anyone? Right? It's a real story. It's in the Bible. And what I, I love about the story of David and Goliath, and I'll just sort of give you the Cliff Notes version of it, is, is uh, David, and, and he's part of the Israelites, right? He, he's part of God's people, Israelites. And the Israelites are at war with a country called Philistia or the Philistines. When I say Philistines, feel free to boo. Okay, boo, Philistines, right? Yeah, so they're at war against the Philistines. And there's a particular battle taking place. And this battle wages on for like 40-some days, we're learning. 
right? And on the side of one hill, the, the army of the, the Israelites is over here. There's a valley in between. And on the other side, there's the army of the Philistines. And every day, morning and night, a, a very large man from the Philistine army, a warrior, marches down the hill, stands in the valley, and taunts God's army, Israel's army. He's a ginormous guy. He's a giant. His name's Goliath. And Goliath yells out to the Israelites' army. He goes, why don't you do, do me this. Send your greatest warrior out to fight me. And if he defeats me, then we will surrender to you. Sounds simple enough. Send one guy out instead of 10,000, right? We could, we could take care of this thing with one life. But the Israelites are terrified. They're fearful. They don't want to fight this giant named Goliath. And so this ensues for 40 days. There's a stalemate. Enter the scene, David, a ruddy shepherd boy running cheese and crackers from his dad to his older brothers who are now been deployed to the front lines of this battle. David shows up, hands the gift to his older brothers, and in the middle of that, David or Goliath comes marching out and begins to taunt Israel's army again. And David says, why is no one not rushing out to beat this fool? Why will no one go out and fight him? He, David says, I'll do it then. And everybody's like, I'm sorry, right? The commander of God's army looks at David and says, are you dumb? Do you think you could defeat this guy? And David goes, listen, listen, Linda, listen. <laughs> You're not listening to me. <laughs> he says, listen, I'm a shepherd boy back home. I, I watch my dad's flocks. And, and every once in a while, a lion or a bear will sneak in to the pasture and will grab a lamb. And I will chase it down and I will rescue that lamb from its mouth. And if that thing rises up to attack me, I kill it with my bare hands, he says. This uncircumcised Philistine, and it just got personal all of a sudden. <laughs> like, I don't know why you add that part. That matters. I won't go into the details. Yes. But he says, why are we letting that man taunt us? I'll go out and take care of it. And so he steps onto the battlefield and Goliath laughs at him. Who is this boy you've sent out to battle me? And he takes a step towards David. And David, as the battle ensues, runs. He runs straight to Goliath. You know the story. He grabs a sling and a stone. He whips around, hits Goliath straight on the head. Goliath falls down. And with no weapon of his own, David takes Goliath's own sword and cuts off his head and kills him right there. Interesting side note, he takes the head with him for a couple days. I have no idea what that's about, but you can imagine what this looked like. Phone, wallet, keys, head, let's go. <laughs> I don't know, hold this, I gotta go to the restroom. I... He carries his head with him for a while. And in that moment and on that day, David became famous, infamous, really. But David's life, like your life, like my life is not just filled with success and celebration. It is oftentimes filled with failure, frustration, shame. Fast forward a number of years, David, the shepherd boy, has now become king, king over all of Israel. And one day, one spring day, the Bible tells us, as he awakens from his kingly nap. Say it with me now, kingly nap. How awesome does that sound? He gets up off his kingly couch from his kingly nap and begins to walk around on the roof of his house. It's like our modern day back porch or patio. And as he's walking around on his palace roof, he sees a woman in the distance who's beautiful, 
And he asks his people, who is this woman? And they come back to him and they say, well, she's, she's a woman. In fact, she's married to a soldier in your army. And that soldier is actually in battle for you right now, David. And David does this thing. He calls the woman over to himself. Fast forward a little bit longer. And all of a sudden, they find out she's pregnant. David had taken advantage of this woman, and now she's pregnant. And then David tries to hide it. He connives this scheme, this plan to to sort of hide this whole pregnancy thing, and it doesn't work. And when it doesn't work, he goes one step further, and then he has her husband murdered. Then he takes this woman to be his own wife, and they will just tell everyone who would listen that the baby just came early. Wink, wink. And the plan seemed to be going swimmingly, seemed to be going exactly as David had hoped. Except there's this really interesting phrase in 2 Samuel chapter 11. There's another character in the story, a character that I haven't mentioned yet. His name is God. Maybe you've heard of him. (laughs) See, David thinks everything's awesome, man. This is great. All right, it wasn't the best plan, but it worked out. The wedding went great. Got a new baby out of the deal. It's not so bad. But there's another character. God's been paying attention. And what we write... What we learn from the writer of 2 Samuel is that, that all of these things that David had done greatly displeased the Lord. And the sad thing about all of this is David had no idea. He had no idea that everything he had been doing had actually been sinning against God himself. He thought he was just trying to cover up something, trying to live his life. And I wonder if you and I don't do similar things in our lives. Yeah, we all break the rules a little bit. I'm not judging anyone, right? But hear hear this. There are things that we're doing we think we're getting away with, and yet God is noticing them all. And when we sin, it is not just against other people, but against God himself. And you and I need to understand this. And if I could argue this point again and again and again, this is why I think Luke left that detail about David in the story of Jesus. There's something significant about David's life that we must lay onto our own lives to understand this. David having no No understanding that he sinned against God is just going on his merry way. And then God, in great loving kindness, sends a man, a man named Nathan. Anyone heard of him? A prophet of God, a a spokesperson from God. And Nathan goes before David and said, what's up, Dave? Actually, he doesn't say that. He probably bows before King David and says, King, I have something I I want to ask you. God has sent me here, and he wants to ask you a question. May I continue? And David says, sure. There's two men, Nathan says. There's a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man had many fields, many flocks, lots of stuff, stuff that rich people have. And the poor man has nothing but one little baby ewe lamb. And this ewe lamb, he treats more like a pet or a family member. It sleeps with him at night. He feeds it scraps from the table. It's his prized possession. And one day a visitor come a calling on the rich man. And the rich man wanted to prepare a feast for this visitor to celebrate his coming. And rather than take one of his own bulls, one of his own goats, one of his own sheep, he grabs this young lamb from the poor man and he kills it. David's lip begins to quiver in anger. You can see this. And Nathan asks the question that God wants to ask. What should happen to this man? David rises to his feet in frustration and anger and says, that man should die. It was a wicked and cruel thing that he did. That man surely deserves death. And then Nathan stands up and says, David, you are that man. What you have done 
is the same as that. What you've done to Bathsheba, sinning against her, taking her when she was already married to someone else. What you've done to her husband Uriah by, by killing him on the battlefield is sinful. And in this moment, sorrow and sadness fills David's heart. And for the first time ever, he sees his own sin and it ruins him. Praise God. <laughs> Praise God. Because it's only in this moment can something happen in David's life. It's only in this moment can something happen in our lives when we see the connection of our sin in our world as it connects us to God as well. David also, of the many things he's done in his life, is also a musician. Probably an emo musician, if that's still a thing, right? <laughs> and in the middle of this season of his life, he writes a song. A song. A song of confession and repentance. And we have this song recorded for us. It's in our Bible. It's in your Bible. It's called Psalm 51. The book of Psalms, I don't know if you know this, is a songbook of the, the, the people of God. They would use these songs to worship God as they would uh, live in Israel. And they would sing the Psalm 51 that David had penned about this particular portion of his life as a, a song of repentance confession as they too have sinned against God. And this song is fraught with emotion. It's fraught with frustration and pain and turmoil. And David is pouring out his heart here. And I want to read Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4, so that we can feel sort of the weight that David was feeling when he wrote this. He stands before God, and in this first verse, he writes, Have mercy on me, God. I mean, I don't know if the words even come out uh, with any tonal, tonal quality to them. It's almost like a whisper of confession. Have Mercy on me, God, he says. According to your steadfast love, according to your love that never ends, according to your love that never runs, according to your love that never fails, according to your love that isn't, isn't conditional upon how I respond to you, but according to the love that you have always laid before me, your steadfast, never-ending, forever and ever love, he says, have mercy on me. According to this un. Uh, abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Please, Lord, he says, wash me thoroughly from this iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know that my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, he says, you only have I sinned and I have done what is evil in your sight. And he says, Lord, you would be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment of me. He says, you no one would think, think twice about your decision to kill me, God, if that's what you want to do. I deserve it. I've sinned against you. I love that. I've already mentioned that he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah, but he has this understanding, like in this moment, that his sin is first and foremost against God. And he, he pleads on God's merciful character and his loving character for this one thing. He says, blot out my transgressions. He says, get rid of them. Guys, this is back in the day. This, this actually tells the story, metaphorical story, that God is paying attention to every action and every thought and everything that we do. He is, it's scary to consider that he's paying attention that much. 
And the idea is that he's pinning down or writing down into some, some ethereal or heavenly book everything that happens. And there's chapters in each of our books that we wish weren't there. And David has one too. And David's saying, God, I need you to blot that out. There's no erasers back then. We can't reprint this and rebind this book. That event took place. What he's asking God to do is to take ink and pour it over the page so that no one, not even God himself, can come back and read that story. That's how hurtful David feels. That I've sinned against you, God. I don't even want you to see this story in my life again. Please blot out the transgressions of my life, he says. Please. I think this is why Luke kept this part in the story of Jesus' birth. That it's so quick for us to just put together a manger scene, throw a couple donkeys, some wise men. They weren't even at the birth, just so you know, it's not even true. All right, that's free. Take that home with you. <laughs> not even true. We got this little baby in the straw thing. And we just want to, like, joy to the world this thing away. And I'm here to tell you, <coughs> we can never fully receive the gift that is Jesus if we don't first understand um, that Jesus was sent to save us. And if we don't know that we need saved, we'll never accept his gift. We must understand this. David understood this. There's a sort of, well, it's almost barbaric understanding in the Old Testament, but there's this thing called the law, and God placed the law before his people, and he says, listen, if you're going to sin against me, okay, because it's going to happen, then you're going to need to offer a sacrifice on your behalf. That sin, for it to be atoned for or removed from you, it, must re it requires the shedding of blood. I know it's barbaric, it's crazy. I don't have time to go into it right now, but just know this. David knows this story. For every sin that he has sinned against God, he knows that he needs to take an innocent animal, a dove, a goat, a bull. He should take it to the temple and have the priest kill it instead of him. See, his sin requires death. His sin requires the shedding of blood. David knows this. And so he continues in his song as he's singing this song of repentance and confession. And in verse 16, David now drives home the point that I want us to all see today. He says, Lord, you don't delight in sacrifice. I know that's what we're supposed to do right now. I know that because I've sinned, I should offer a sacrifice to you. But I know something about you now, Lord. You don't delight in it. I know the very thing you want from me, and it's not sacrifice. Because if it was, I would give it to you. You can picture this. David, with a kingly snap of his hand, he could call his servants in to bring thousands of bulls. He could put together the, uh, a flurry of religious activity, the likes of which the world has never seen before. In a moment, I can do anything religiously that you want me to do. But God, that's not what you want from me. You don't want religious activity from me. You don't want this sacrifice from me. You want something else from me. And this is important for us because I think some of us come before God to receive his gift of Jesus and push back to him religious activity. Dude, you should see my church attendance. It is st uh, stellar or spectacular. And God's like, eh, okay. I'd have taken some days off. To be honest with you, I'd have gone vacationing with the family if it were me. Some people push their giving record. Thank you, by the way. I'm full-time, I'm just saying. <laughs> I appreciate your faithful giving, and I mean that. But God doesn't send his son Jesus to die upon a cross so we could fill our lives with religious activity. There's something else 
that God wants from us. David knows what it is, and this is why Luke leaves it in the story of Jesus' birth. What, what is the gift that God wants from us? And he says in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are this, a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart. It's not religious activity. There's, there's something that must happen for us to ever push anything back towards God that he would receive. A, a brokenness of our heart must take place. And hear me, this is not a brokenness that harms us. This is a, a brokenness that allows God to then get in and work inside of us. The contrition that, of the, that, that is spoken of here of the contrite heart is this, is this humility. We finally understand that what God wants to do in us is to break, break us down so that we can become humble. That we don't go back to God with this, this sort of, um, where we take a look at the sin in our life and we sort of discount it by saying things like, well, yeah, Friday was kind of rough. Right? I agree. Amen, right? <laughs> But at least it wasn't like last Friday. And we began to justify some of our sins. Well, I only do these things because that's, that's who I am. My mom and dad were like this. And we begin to justify all the things that we're doing in our life. And God is saying, no, no, no. David, understand, that's not what God wants. What God wants is a broken heart that he can come in and work in. The prophet Ezekiel, can you read this in your Old Testament? Ezekiel says this. He says that we have all been given hearts of stone. And there will come a day when God will exchange our heart of stone for a heart of flesh, a heart that then pulses and beats with the very heartbeat of God, wanting to do what he wants to do, surrendering our own lives to do his will. This is the thing that God's after. David understands it, and yet he never could see it until God showed it to him. Praise be to Jesus that God shows us our sin. I've had the most ridiculous times of confession that I could ever, I mean, I can't even share some of them with you. You ever cried so hard, it feels like every um, ounce of mucus decides to leave your head through your nose. <laughs> it is not pretty, I'm just saying. My wife is probably going, Jeff, don't say it. I've had moments like this. And it's only in that moment can I then fully see what God has made available to me through Jesus? It's only in that moment can I then see that, that for the relationship that I want to have to be restored with God, it means I must walk through this, this broken um, heart door, that God has to change something inside of me when the full weight of my sin lays itself on top of me and the wrath of God that is due to me, when I begin to feel it and understand it, only then can I be changed. David sees this and understands it. There is something that does come later to blot out David's sins. Although it's not ink from the writer's desk, it's blood from his son, Jesus, that is poured across this page. And now when God, oh, hallelujah, when God looks at the pages of your life and my life, if we're faithful in Jesus, he doesn't see our works, he sees Jesus' sacrifice. For our sins to be atoned for, a sacrifice must be given. Wink, wink, Jesus is that sacrifice. He is that sacrifice for us. 
Nathan was sent by God to help him. It seems judgy and condemning. Um, God will sometimes send each of us to one another to call them on the sins in their lives. And hear me, and if someone comes to you in love and says, bro, the things you're doing are wrecking your family. The things you're doing are ruining your business. The things you're doing are whatever, right? And on and on it goes. If someone comes to you in love, hear me, it might very well, very well be God who sent them to you. Because if you think everything's fine, <laughs> you're missing it. If you think everything's fine and you don't think that the, things, the bad things that you're doing are not harming and hurting your relationship with God, then you're going to miss all of this. And so God lovingly sends Nathan, and sometimes God will send each of us to one another, and sometimes God will even send his Holy Spirit. I love this. The Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us, has been given to the world to convict or convince the world of her sin. I've just been reading the Bible. I've just been standing at a gas station pump. I've been just driving down the road and all of a sudden as if God himself shows up in my car and says, Jeff, this thing in your life is ridiculousness. Let it go. I mean, on and on it goes. I, maybe for some of you, you've been just reading the Bible and all of a sudden it's like this story's about a guy named David and his older brother Eliab and Abinadab or whatever those guys' names are and all this stuff. And all of a sudden God is saying, that's you, you're him right now. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's what he does. And it's God's great compassion and love for us that he does this. It's only when we stop justifying our wrong choices are we then awakened to the reality of them. Only when we offer no more excuses and begin to shift the blame do we then begin to see what God has made available to us. It's only when we fully agree with God about how evil some of our lifestyle choices are do we then, can we then move on to freedom from them. Oh. Now, this is where I think it gets real good. Luke records in that gospel, chapter 2, verse 4, he says, and they go from this place to, up in Galilee down to Judea to this city of David. He uses that language, city of David, and then he uses this other phrase, the lineage of David. What God is doing for us in his son Jesus is he's not asking us to go somewhere else to meet him. Some of us dwell in the craziest, the craziest life that we might actually, you might even say that your, your address is, you know, one, two, three. This is going to sound so dumb. All right, I admit it, it's dumb. Let's just not laugh at it. I'm going to say it anyways, do not laugh. Your address might be 123 Sin Avenue. Thank you for that. I had to get it out of me. Why would you ruin it? No, my, my point is this, is we might very, very well be dwelling in the, the, dark, uh, the darkness of sin and, and God sends his Savior there. See, the Savior was born in a town called Bethlehem, a city of David. David was known not just for his, his great things that he's done as a king, but as a man who sinned against God. And you and I, we sin against God. And God sends his Savior, his son Jesus, into that place for you. He meets you where you are in your city. Some would say, well, it's just my DNA. It's my family 
David, right? Joseph's of the lineage of David. I love this. And God sends Jesus into that family tree to cut that branch off so you can no longer use that as an excuse. Oh, do you see it? <laughs> Luke leaves it in there for us. And we miss it. We miss it if we don't pay attention. What is today? The 10th, 12th? 10? So Christmas is coming. Anybody heard about Christmas? Kind of a big deal. I have no idea. <laughs> right? And I have, I have two teenage daughters, and in a few days or weeks, um, they will both come to me, and they'll say these words. Dad, Daddy, I hope they say Daddy. It just melts my heart. Daddy, wh- wh- what do you want for Christmas? And I'll go, oh, they care. <laughs> like, mom didn't put them, like, Mom didn't put them up to it. Like, Dad, what do you want? What do you want for Christmas? And, and I'll, like, throw some stuff out there that's kind of cheap, Stuff that they could like, they could get, and things that I really need, like a new belt, right? Maybe fudge. I don't know, fudge. Maybe. I mean, <laughs> these are all really good gifts. I'm just saying, right? <laughs> Which is why I need a new belt. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm always up for new cologne, right? That whole thing. I throw that stuff out there that they could get their hands on, and um, and then they'll say this next line to me. Hey, Dad, can I borrow $20? <laughs> I'm like, what? Like if, oh, okay, you're going to take my money and buy me a gift back. What I should do is give them $500 and get that really nice tool that I've been wanting, but Stacy won't let me get. And then when I open it on Christmas, I'm like, oh, I don't know. The girls bought it for me. Don't look at me. I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> my point in saying all of that is, they can't even buy the gift for me unless I give them the resources to buy the gift. Can you hear this from God himself? You can't even give him back the broken heart unless he breaks it for you. You can't even do it. Everything you're trying to do won't work. You have to let him do this in your life and then respond by pushing it back to him. This is not mean, it's not cruel, it's not damaging to you. It is the best thing that will ever happen to you. This is why Luke includes this in the story of the birth of our Savior. This matters to us. Will you pray with me? Lord, we throw ourselves upon your mercy tonight. We, we throw the sins of our lives in your direction, knowing that you love us. God, I pray that you would be gentle with us like you were with David. God, we know that the, that the cross where Jesus was crucified was was horrific, it was painful, it was excruciating, and it was undeserved. That that cross is a picture of the punishment that should have been given to us for our sins. And yet you're, you're pushing it upon your son, your only son. And now, because of that, we, we can come before you and and walk in this newness of life 
having all of our sins removed from us. God, I pray you use your, your, your compassionate hands and you grab us by the shoulders and you, you peer into our eyes and you say, I know what's going on in there. I see the things you think about. I see the fear that you have. I see the, the things that you're doing and, and it's, it's, it's not right, it's sinful. And I want to remove these things from you. God, help us to fully hear that tonight. Holy Spirit, I pray that as, as, as even in the next few minutes as the band will be singing songs and people around us will be declaring the goodness of God, that we will be moved to tears because of something in our life that you're reminding us of. And then when we take that to this place of forgiveness and say, God, please take this away from me, he, he reminds us of Jesus and he says, I have, I have, I have. You no longer carry guilt for this. The greatest gift the world has ever known is Jesus. Father, bless the rest of our time together. God, I've been praying all week. I've been desperately needing some, some worship time, some, some space to just get loud and thank you for what you've done. Some, some space to just cry openly, some space to just um, receive the joy that you have for me. My, my life these last few weeks has been marred with mud and I'm tired. God, I need, I need you tonight to be here. God, help me to worship you. Help me to thank you. Help me to push back a broken heart towards you so that you can work on it. I thank you for Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Together we can reach the heart of Decatur. And if you'd like to be a part of that, go to rendicator.org backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them.